You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon, Heather. How are you? Oh, I'm still getting over being sick, so I'm still kind of not doing very well, but I'm better than I was for last Friday. I so. think I think everybody that got that bug is is dealing with it, but there's uh, there's there's hope on the horizon for that one because because once you've had your second or third bout of it, you recover. Yeah. <laughs> People are going. I'm sick with something else. I go. No, I think it's the same thing. You're just it's just coming back around again to tag you one more time. But, uh, oh, there's so much excitement in the studio today. I'm really looking forward to today's guest, so I'm not going to waste any time getting right to it. Uh, A big shout out to my friend Jane Kennedy over at the OC Business Journal, who's been putting me in touch with some phenomenal people. But I'm really excited today to have one of UCI's uh, very own rock stars, (laughs) Erwin Chemerinsky. Welcome to the studio. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, for those of you that don't know, Erwin is the founding dean of UCI Law School. And is it fair to say that uh, you've achieved some sort of rock star status here in Orange County because because of this? You're very sweet to put it that way. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's so much that. It's just that in preparation for this interview, I did I did toss your name out there a few times, and I was so surprised by the reaction. You are a really beloved man in this county, and um, I, I thought that was so interesting. It wasn't just people in the legal profession. It was from people from all different walks of life here in county life. So That's so kind of you, and it's so nice of them to say. Well, there must be some truth to it. So we want to we want to dig a little deeper into your life and figure out um, figure out who you are. And um, in anticipation of you today, and in te- and, um, in really wanting to sp- spend some time uh, delving into the law school, what that project has been like for you. Um, I brought along a friend, Maria Faltas, who's in the studio with me today. Hello, Maria. Hello. Thank you for being here. It is my pleasure. Maria is applying to law schools. She's applied to recently to Berkeley and to Stanford, and she's planning on applying to UCI as well. So maybe we'll talk her into it today. What do you think? I hope so. Very much like to see her come to UCI Law School. <laughs> All right, good. Well, let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about this project. What has this been like for you? It's been an amazing experience. The regents of the University of California approved a new law school at UC Irvine. And then in spring of 2007, a dean search was done. I was offered the position in the summer of 2007, accepted the position. I was on the faculty of Duke Law School at the time. I was still teaching at Duke that year. I flew out to Irvine one day a week that year, which was an amazing thing. to. I'd usually take the red eye come in the morning, spend a day here, and we spent that year recruiting our founding faculty and our founding administrators. I moved here in June of 2008. We had the founding faculty spend a year planning the law school, and then our first students arrived in August of 2009. We each year expanded the size of the school in terms of students and faculty. We graduated our first class last May, in May of 2012. Quite, quite an accomplishment, and in such short amount of time too. Is there are there any records that you set with uh, the timing of this? I don't know if we set any records, but I think that we've been very successful in a lot of what we set out to do. 
Last year, there was a study done by some professors in Minnesota that ranked law school faculties across the country. And we were ranked seventh in the country on Yale, Harvard, Chicago, Stanford, NYU, and Columbia. And so it's, I think, a wonderful tribute to the quality of our faculty to be ranked that high in a school that's really just now in its fifth year of existence. On the bar exam, our students had the second best pass rate of any California law school behind only Stanford. 91% of our students who took the bar last summer passed, and as I say, among California schools, only Stanford was better. Of our students who graduated last May, 93% of them have full-time legal employment. 35% of them are doing the very prestigious position of clerking for federal judges, which was higher than any law school in the country in terms of percentages. Well, that's, that's significant. So, I mean... I, I, in research, we certainly looked at a lot of those statistics, and they're very impressive. It's, it's not typical for a new law school to achieve such milestones so quickly. The chancellor and the executive vice chancellor set as their goal from the beginning that this be a top 20 law school by every measure from the outset. And they were willing to invest the time and the resources to make that happen. And I think we've shown it can be done. I don't know of another new law school, certainly in my lifetime, that set that as its objective, and that was what ours was to be. And as I say, thanks to the university support, we've really been able to achieve it. Oh, that's that's it's quite amazing. Uh, when in looking at some of the comments that you've made about UCI Law School, um, you said you were excited to create the ideal law school. What are some of the components to an ideal law school? What I said from the beginning is, if we simply replicate other law schools, we'll have failed. There's no need for another law school like the ones that exist. I said we had the wonderful opportunity of a blank slate, and we had to take advantage of it to create the ideal law school. And from my perspective, what that means is we should do the best job we possibly can of preparing students to practice law at the highest levels of the profession. I didn't graduate from law school ready to practice law. Talk to any lawyer in there tell you that. And so what we set out to do is a far better job of training our students to be lawyers. Okay, so what are some of the necessary components that go into making that happen? We require that every student to graduate have a clinical experience where the student practice law on behalf of real clients under the supervision of a faculty member. We had two students last week arguing in Sacramento. I'm supervising a couple of students who will be arguing in the Federal Court of Appeals. Last spring, in fact, we had 10 students argue in the Federal Court of Appeals in Pasadena. Every student will represent clients under faculty supervision. That's how you learn to be a lawyer. We're one of very few law schools in the country, and certainly the only one on the West Coast, that requires that students have this kind of experience. We send all our first-year students to legal aid or the public defenders to do intake interviews of prospective clients. So our students have contact with real clients in their first-year law school. We're the only law school in the country that I know that does that. We've designed a whole series of classes that are really oriented towards preparing our students to be lawyers. Okay, so what would be the reason why other law schools wouldn't prepare their students in this way? Why is this such a significant leap over the way things have been done in the past? Clinical education is expensive. Hmm. You have to have a very small student-faculty ratio. And the school has to decide it's going to invest its resources in doing that. The genius of traditional legal education and financial perspective is you put one professor in front of a very large classroom of students, that's quite cost-effective. And you don't have laboratories or those kind of costs in law schools. Um, 
the opposite of that is to have small classes and clinical classes, and that's what we've decided to do. Okay. Are we, have we hooked you yet, Maria? Oh, I, I'm ready to Are sign up. Where do I sign up? Um, I'm curious to know, what is the student-faculty ratio right now? We, at this point, have 33 full-time faculty and 300 students. So it's a ratio of about 9 to 1. It's very impressive. It is. If you look at other schools, um, the ratios are generally much larger than that. And I think one of the things that I say to prospective students is they're choosing among law schools is a real advantage that we have is the small size of the school. So for most first-year classes, the students have... 30 or 40 students per te- for a teacher there. Instead of when I was in law school, every one of my first year classes had 150 students per teacher. I'm teaching constitutional law this semester, and I have 40 students for it. And it's just different to teach 40 students as opposed to, say, 150 students. Are you a better instructor in that environment? Everybody learns better in smaller rather than larger classes. Any of us who are parents would say, when we choose schools for our children, we'd always rather have the best possible student-faculty ratio. That's right. And so I think that everybody can learn better in smaller classes. Also, a benefit of being smaller and have a better student-faculty ratio is the faculty is more accessible outside of class. So much learning goes on outside of the formal classroom setting. And so I think by having smaller classes, it's much easier for students to feel comfortable seeing faculty and to actually be with faculty. And interacting them with in this more intimate way when they're working on cases. Well, and certainly in the clinics. In a, in a clinic, you can't have more than eight <clears throat> students per faculty member, and sometimes it's less than that, because that's what it takes in order to supervise students to practice law. And that then becomes a very close relationship between the professor and the students. Okay. Um, one of the things you talked about was how you were excited about the recruiting process for faculty. Let's talk a little bit about that. It's changed over time. When we began, I had to recruit the founding faculty to come. And given our goal of being a top 20 law school from the beginning, we set out that we were going to recruit 10 founding faculty, all having to come from top 20 law schools and all being superstars in their field. And it was hard to convince that first group of faculty to come. No one wanted to commit until they heard who else was committed. Kind of like one of those Hollywood movies. Well, you know, I got so-and-so on the other line. He's committed, and then that's how you bring the movie That's together. very much how we did, but we did. And, but once we got that founding faculty, it then became easier the next year to recruit people and easier the next year and easier. On the other hand, we're now in the mode of recruiting our, I guess it would be our sixth group of faculty to join us. And the problem is they're all terrific. They all have offers from other places. So today I was corresponding with a woman who we've made an offer to to join us who has offers from eight other law schools, including places like Duke and Cornell and um, Berkeley. And then I'm recruiting somebody else who has offers at Northwestern and Virginia. So the, the challenge in recruiting faculty is we want to get the very best, and the very best are going to demand at other places as well. That's right. So do you find you have a special um, hook to offer them? What I have to offer them is the chance to come to be part of creating a very special law school. This is the only university of this caliber to create a new law school in my lifetime and likely in the years to come. And that's a wonderful opportunity to come and take advantage of the blank slate. And so when I recruit faculty, what I say is come be part of creating 
this wonderful new law school. Do you find that the faculty that you do recruit and that do accept to come on board um, are a little bit maybe out-of-the-box thinkers in, in the legal profession, and maybe that's why this opportunity does appeal to them? A blank slate wouldn't be appealing to every, every lawyer. Obviously, every anyone faculty. who joins our faculty has to be committed to the enterprise of what we're about. And I've even said to people, if it's not interesting to you to be part of creating a law school, this isn't the right place for you. And I can think of some instances of some terrific people we didn't get because this isn't what they wanted to do. Right. And so I think that the answer to your question in a very general way is yes, we do get a certain kind of faculty. That said, our 33 faculty are an incredibly diverse group. And there's probably 33 different stories as to why they decided to come to UCI Law School. Probably. <laughs> I, um, you know, yeah, I was going to say, Maria, what do you <laughs> Well, I, I am just I'm just completely mesmerized right now. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, um, of those 33 people, um, is there any kind of commonalities? Is there a reason that um, kind of unites them as a whole in terms of an area of specialty that you're trying to design um, in order to really brand the school as an experts in a given area of the legal field? I think there's a couple of questions there. One is what unites the whole faculty? Mm-hmm. And obviously it's not specialty because the faculty reflect many different specialties. I think what unites the faculty is the desire to come and be part of creating this. One other thing unites this faculty, it is the best teaching faculty that I have ever been part of. It's a faculty that really cares about students and teaching. And what I've been so impressed by my colleagues is we consider prospective faculty candidates. There are a number of instances where we've rejected some really big names because they don't have good teaching evaluations at their home institutions. And so I think we're united by what we're trying to create and by the mission. In terms of specialty, we'll always be a small law school. You know, we'll, when we're our full size, have 55 faculty. That's, you know, NYU has 110 faculty. Georgetown, I think, is like 140 faculty. Harvard's of that size. We can't be great at everything. And so we have to identify areas we really care about and look to build specialties and emphasis there. And at the same time, what we have to do is realize that we'll develop some specialties organically, just as a group of people come, even though it might not have been a target area. They'll have an area of specialty. So I'll give you examples. I've said from the beginning I wanted us to have a real area of specialty in intellectual property law because it's so important at this point in time, in environmental law because it's so important at this moment in time and where we are. And we have great faculty, a group of faculty in intellectual property, a group of faculty in environmental law. I said I think it's very important we have a very strong faculty in international law. Globalization is so important. We have that as an area of specialty. Public interest and public service law has always been very important to us. We have an area of specialty there. I'd like to make law and medicine an area of specialty. We haven't done that one yet. And then some specialty areas have grown just based on who we've hired. We have probably the best faculty in the country in the area of immigration law. Um, Jennifer Chacon and Stephen Lee and Samir Asher, and we're hiring somebody else in that area. We didn't plan that as a specialty. We went to hire great faculty we happen to hire a number of that is their area of expertise. Okay, I, I love that. Uh, okay, so th- it's probably been a bit of an om- overwhelming task. And as you sit back and reflect on uh, the last few years, what have the greatest challenges been? 
any hurdles you had to jump over you didn't well, expect? constant hurdles. Um, everything is difficult. I mean, all beginnings <laughs> That's, are difficult. I think we can all say that um, just about everything creating, in life today. Right, and, um, and so, you know, we go through from the beginning all of the things that had have to be overcome and still have to be overcome. I think, and I'm going to answer this really candidly, I think that I didn't expect that I liked the most is how many different things I get to do every day. Oh. I am constantly learning. I think one of the things that I didn't expect that I liked the least, it's a constant hurdle, is how overly bureaucratized the University of California is. Oh, yeah. This is, maybe the Kremlin is more bureaucratized, <laughs> but the amount of time that is spent on silly bureaucratic things is a constant challenge. Yeah. And is, yeah. I was oh, gonna, I was go just going to ask that. you about another challenge. I don't know if you saw the New York Times article in January 30th where apparently law school and aggregate applications have dropped and, you know, fees are increasing and students aren't able to get jobs right out of law school. So they're having, you know, a, enormous student debt. How does, like, how do you face those challenges in the future? Let me talk about the University of California, Irvine, and then I can talk more generally. Yeah. Our applications went up 105% last year. Our applications are constant with last year's. Maybe we'll have a slight increase this year, but we're not seeing the decrease that other places are. And I think we'll continue to see our applications grow because as we get better known, more and more people are applying. Well, and, and so, your success rate for putting those students into jobs, uh, those graduates actually, right. into jobs. You know, that 93% of those who graduated last May have full-time paid legal employment I think helps us recruit students. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I'm very mindful of those things. It is the market we operate in, but thankfully it's all going very well for <laughs> us. Now, I'm also mindful of the debt of students. We give a great deal of financial aid based on both merit and need. Just last week we announced we've created a loan repayment assistance plan for any students who are after graduation go to do public service work. We will repay their loans for them so as to facilitate that. And so there are many things that we can do to decrease the cost. Now, now that's a big statement for you on part of, of your law school, that, um, that the students that choose public service. Tell me what more that says about, about you as the, as the dean and, and the direction the law school wants to go into. From the moment I first talked to the dean's search committee here, I said that one of my key visions for the law school is one that was really committed to public service. And that manifests itself in many different ways. The requirement for a clinic by all students is part of that. We have a very aggressive pro bono program where we strongly encourage every student to do volunteer legal work. I'm proud that of the students who graduated last May, 98% did pro bono work, and they averaged over 100 hours each of pro bono work while in law school. We have scholarships specifically for students who show an interest in public service and we have the loan repayment assistance plan. If a student wants to come here and say, my goal is to go to a big law firm, we will give them a great education and do everything we can to find them the job that they want. But we also have a real emphasis for the students who want to go and represent the poor or the environment or civil liberties. You know, it's it's been a real uh, important theme in your own personal law practice, um, civil rights, constitutional law, civil liberties. Are you finding that there's a shortage of lawyers that are wanting to, or students, graduates that are wanting to go into those fields? And is this sh maybe your way of providing an incentive to encourage more people to a life of public service? 
legal services in this country generally are terribly malapportioned. Mm. So much of legal services goes to serve the wealthy and the wealthy corporations. Mm. And there are so many people in this country who have unmet legal needs and so many important things like the environment that are underrepresented. I want us to help our students pursue whatever kind of jobs they want in whatever field. But I particularly care about being sure that we're doing all we can to help our students who want to do public interest in public service law be able to do that. And that's why we created the Loan Repayment Assistance Plan. That's why we have scholarships that are designated for students who do public service. I'm sure. I'm just seeing Maria just eyes wide open over here, excited. That's right up your alley. You want to talk a little bit about what inspires you to go into law? Um, sure. I could say a few words about that. Um, I think my inspiration, if I could pinpoint a certain moment in my life, came from when I was a 12-year-old girl visiting my mother's home country of Costa Rica. And she took me to visit um, her auntie who lived in a tin and cardboard um, shack, for lack of a better word. And we ducked our heads and went inside, and she hosted us graciously over the open fire. And I realized that this, when we talk about life's hard and I'm having a bad day, we really don't have a whole lot of idea what that means. Our lives are pretty comfortable. And that really opened my eyes. And, um, you know, I also um, saw some, some um, you know, tough things growing up, and it really opened my heart and made me a compassionate uh, person in in trying to do something to help people less fortunate. And I think my my travels internationally uh, really opened my eyes when I was young. So um, I, I, d- I definitely have a soft spot in my heart for people who are struggling, uh, who are poor, especially uh, women and children. Um, I, I think that... Uh, there's so much need for advocacy um, for them, for their rights to, to, to be safe, to have access to education um, internationally. And, and uh, that's, that's where my passion is. So um, very interested in UCI. Wonderful. Um, are you getting a lot of feedback now from students and from faculty about the law school? You're getting uh, the accolades you had wanted or maybe some some of the t- tough tougher uh, commentaries we've gotten wonderful publicity for the new law school and certainly gotten tremendous national attention there's no new law school in history that's received the amount of publicity that we have and thankfully most of it has been good publicity Good, good, good. All right, that's nice to hear. We certainly don't don't intend to uh, shine a bright light on anything of the negative, but if any have come your way, would there be some critiques that you would want to find some areas of improvement? We can always improve. I don't think that the improvements that I hope that we'll have in any way have to do with the critiques of the publicity. The publicity has been overwhelmingly positive. That's great. You know, I think our challenges are one of the things I want us to do is to create a very warm community in the law school. There are many adjectives that could be used to describe the law school I attended. Warm would not be one of them. Mm. And so I think we've succeeded in creating this warm community. Well, as we grow, and we're about 60% of our size right now, we have to work hard to keep that as a warm community. One of the things we've really wanted to do is to be innovative. 
we have to be careful is that we advance in our age as an institution, that our status quo not become fossilized too, that we continue right. to be committed to innovation. Those are real challenges for us as we grow. So when you finally retire as dean of the law school, what do you hope the legacy that you brought to the school will be? I hope that we've set out, that we've achieved the goals that we set out to. I have two goals for the law school. One is I want us to be a top 20 law school. And my hope is we'll be that from the very first rankings. And I think we've shown we're already there. We've got to continue to do that. And second, I want us to do a terrific job preparing students for the practice of law. And if we've created an institution that's oriented towards these two goals, then I'll have succeeded. And I said before I started that my plan was to do this for 10 years, assuming the university wants to have me for 10 years. I'm in my (laughs) fifth year now, and I still look at it as I'd like to do this for another five years. Um, By then, we'll be at our full size. My hope is by then we'll be in our new building, which we want to build. And I think that would be a good place to then step down and turn it over to somebody else. But obviously, unexpected things can happen all the time. So, okay, so good. So aside from your your time here at UCI, you've had an interesting career. And I'd like to shift our the topic of our discussion a little bit towards your own personal passions in the law. Uh, you shared that, um, that the law is the most powerful tool for social change. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, you were talking about why you're choosing to apply to law school. It's remarkably similar to why I would explain why I decided to go to law school, obviously, different personal life experiences. I thought all through college that I wanted to be a high school teacher, and I decided at the last minute that you could possibly take the LSAT, <laughs> my senior year of college, to apply for the following year to do so. And what inspired me to go to law school is the civil rights lawyers of the 1950s and the 1960s. I believe then and still believe that law is the most powerful tool for social change. And I went to law school because I wanted to be part of that. Okay, so tell us about how you did become part of it. Name some of the more significant things in your career path that you would like to shine some light on. Obviously, my hope is that that as a teacher, I've helped to inspire students to do this. I've been a law professor for 33 years now, which is a long time. You look too young to be Thank you. I like that. Um, (laughs) But it's true. You really do. Um, Some of the things that I've done that I'm proud of with regard to using law in that way, I was elected by the voters of Los Angeles to be on a commission to rewrite the city charter. A charter of a city in California is like its constitution. It creates the institutions of city government. It allocates power among the branches. It protects individual liberties. And I chaired that commission, and it proposed a new charter, which the voters approved in June of 1999. I think, other than being dean of UCI Law School, the thing I'm professionally most proud of is the city charter of Los Angeles. Two years of my life, it was an overwhelming task, but we did it. Um, I've argued a number of cases in the Supreme Court. I've lost more than I've won, (laughs) but I'm very proud of the things I've done. I represented a man, Leandro Andrade, who received a sentence of life in prison with no possibility of parole for 50 years, for stealing $153 with the videotapes from Kmart stores in San Bernardino, California. He received the sentence under the Three Strikes Law, even though he'd never committed a serious or violent felony. I won his case in the Federal Court of Appeals and then lost in the Supreme Court five to four. I've (sighs) argued death penalty appeals and though I haven't won them, I'm, to me, the, the most important thing one can do is to fight for those things. And so the cases that I've been able to handle and almost always pro bono cases 
I'm very proud of having the chance to be part of those efforts. As somebody that's, you know, fought a three strikes case, what do you think of the voters overturning the three strikes law in the last election? In a way? Just to be clear, what they did by passing the initiative was say that the third strike has to be for a serious or violent felony. No longer can someone receive a life sentence for, like my client, shoplifting. And I think this is a terrific change in the law. They didn't repeal the three strikes law. Yeah. They just said the third strike is to be a serious or violent felony. It's long overdue. And I have a number of former clients now who are eligible for resentencing. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to be clear on that, though, is, is that so your first and second strike can still be something like petty theft. And then the third strike is your felon. Is, you can't, or do all three of them Not have quite. to be a violent act? Your first two strikes have to be felonies. Okay. The thing that California does, which is very strange, is that the third strike doesn't have to be a serious or violent felony. So let's take my client, Leandro Andrade. He had some prior convictions for burglary of unoccupied homes many years earlier. He then got caught stealing once 77 some dollars of videotapes, once 80 some dollars with the videotapes. That's the crime of petty theft in California. That's just a misdemeanor. But if you commit petty theft and you'd previously committed a property crime, you can then be charged, as he was, with the felony of petty theft with a prior. You can then be put in prison for life for shoplifting. No longer is that possible under the initiative passed in November. So will he be eligible for reconsideration? Yes, he is eligible for resentencing. And um, so the old adage, is it better to let... uh, go 50 guilty men than to convict one innocent man. Tell me your feelings Absolutely about that. Absolutely it is. That there is nothing that is more awesome than the state's power to take away somebody's liberty or their life. And we have to create a system where we make sure that innocent people are not wrongly imprisoned. And if that means that at times we have to let the guilty go free, then that's worth the cost. Because the idea of executing an innocent person or putting an innocent person in prison for life is something that no civilized society should accept. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that didn't pass in the last election was repealing the death penalty. What do you think? That, what steps do have to go forward to re- finally repeal that? I hope that California will in the future repeal the death penalty. We can argue over the morality of the death penalty. What we can't argue over is the reality that the death penalty is imposed in a terribly arbitrary way. Those who are African-American or Latino are much more likely to get death sentences than those who are white. Those who are poor are much more likely to get death sentences than those who can afford a lawyer. The accent of geography in California, depending on where you are, you're more likely to get a death sentence than in other places in the state. And we know that innocent people do get convicted and sentenced to death. All of this makes the death penalty unacceptable. I was sorry that the campaign for that initiative focused so much on we should repeal the death penalty to save money. They thought that's how they'd appeal to voters. That may very well be true, though I think it's counterintuitive to most people. I think the key is we have to repeal the death penalty because it's just so arbitrary and unjust. Where do you think, well, f- f- one question before we go to the future. D- do you think it ever works as a deterrent, the death penalty? I don't want to focus on your word ever. Okay. I want to focus on overall. Okay. Many studies that have been done that show the existence of the death penalty doesn't serve as a deterrent. Think about it for the rational person. If an individual knew that he or she was going to definitely be convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole, 
would they be more likely to commit the crime than if they were going to get the death penalty? My guess is many of us would rather have the death penalty than face life in prison without parole. And um, do you think that in 10 years that we'll finally get to a place where it will be repealed? I think we are on that path now. But the answer to your question depends on things we can't know. Most of all, crime rates. When crime rates were going up, the appeal of the death penalty was much greater for voters. Crime rates are consistently going down now. And as a result, I think there's less pressure for or appeal to the death penalty, which is why the initiative had a real chance of passing in November. It didn't, but I think it will, assuming the, the trends continue like mm-hmm. this. So it just takes the takes the, uh, the the heat off of the issue, and so people start to consider yes. it as, an, as a more viable option. <clears throat> Anybody else want to say anything about that? No, I mean the death penalty is horrible, and it's just it's just a matter of time before it does get repealed. Because I think more and more people are realizing it's not effective. You put the, you can sentence the wrong person to death, and there's no reset button and all of that stuff. So I think it will be repealed eventually. It's just a matter of time. So I did want to ask you one thing that um, was and it passed through the ballot initiatives a few years ago was Prop Eight and DOMA. They're both being taken up by the Supreme Court. Uh, do you have any predictions on what the outcomes of those two cases might possibly be? They're going to be argued to the Supreme Court in March of 2013 on two consecutive days. One case is called United States versus Windsor. It involves whether Section 3 of the Defense and Marriage Act is constitutional. It says for purpose of federal law and federal benefits, marriage has to be between a man and a woman. And there's the other case, the Prop 8 case you mentioned, Hollingsworth versus Perry, which involves whether Proposition 8 that amended the California Constitution to say in this state marriage between a man and a woman is constitutional. There are some serious procedural issues in these cases. For example, the Obama administration is not willing to defend the Defense of Marriage Act. The question is, can House Republicans then do so? The governor and the attorney general would not appeal to defend Prop 8. Can supporters of an initiative come to court to defend the initiative? So I don't know that the court's going to really decide the question. But if they do, I think the court's going to rule at least five to four that there's a right to marriage equality for gays and lesbians and that these laws are unconstitutional. I think, especially Anthony Kennedy has to decide, does he want to write the next Plessy versus Ferguson or the next Brown versus Board of Education? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is going to be clear to him. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about the players on the Supreme Court. Let's give us some of your opinions. The court's divided with four very conservative justices, four overall liberal justices, and then Anthony Kennedy. So you have Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, and Justice Alito, who are as conservative as any justice who have been on the court, at least since the mid-1930s. Then you have Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. I think Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor are the most liberal of those four, but overall, all four are left of center. And that, of course, leaves Anthony Kennedy. So when we talk about marriage equality or we talk about affirmative action or other key issues, it really always comes down to Anthony Kennedy. Justice Kennedy votes with the conservatives about 70% of the time when the court's ideologically divided five to four. But he's often the swing justice and sometimes is willing to vote with the liberals. Mm. Okay. What do you think about the um, Clarence Thomas speaking in open court for the first time in eight years? I've argued in the Supreme Court several times. I've probably argued over 100 appeals in lower courts. I really value oral argument. 
This is my chance to answer the questions of the judges or justices. This is my chance to try to address their greatest concern in voting for my position. I'm very distressed that we have a justice on the Supreme Court who literally goes years and years without asking questions. If you go to the Supreme Court and watch, he sits and tilts his chair back and closes his eyes. I'm sure he is awake and listening, but it doesn't look that way. (laughs) So several weeks ago, he made a snide comment about Yale Law School in response to something that one of the justices had said. It was a question about ineffectiveness as counsel, and Justice Thomas made fun of Yale Law School. He didn't even ask a question there. Um, I think he shows disrespect for the process by never asking lawyers questions. Why bother to have oral argument then? What does it take to get a Supreme Court justice impeached in that case? That's not going to happen. Um, (laughs) Impeaching a Supreme Court justice requires showing treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. It would take a majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate. Clarence Thomas is 64 years old. He's going to be on the Supreme Court for years, decades to come. What do you think happened? Why is he so unengaged? There are many explanations that are offered. Justice Thomas has said that he believes there are too many questions from the justices and that the lawyers should be able to give their argument. Others have said that because he grew up with an unusual dialect, he's less comfortable speaking in public. I've heard other explanations as well. I'm not going to psychoanalyze him. I can just describe the reality that he doesn't ask questions. And I'll tell you, as a lawyer who stood before the justices, you just forget he's there during oral argument. You have eight people peppering you with questions. You don't worry about the one who's not asking you questions. Yeah, you're probably a little bit relieved, actually. Describe that to us. I, I think a lot of our listeners would be really interested to hear what it would be like as a lawyer standing before the Supreme Court. It's incredibly exciting. You have the chance to argue something that's going to matter beyond your case. So in the three strikes case, I knew when I argued it that if I won, there'd be hundreds of people in California who would be able to get out of prison. So you felt the, the, you, quite, a, you feel, quite a weighty burden right, on your shoulders. Much so. Um, you have these incredibly smart, well-prepared justices. It's intimidating because you have... Lots of people watching. The transcript's going to come out that afternoon. People are going to listen to the oral argument. You have the reporters who cover it. I've seen even experienced lawyers make terrible mistakes. And most of all, I don't want to have one of those moments where I want the floor to open up and swallow me and let me go away. Um, It's frustrating, too. The justices have very little respect for one another's questions. And so you Hmm. don't really get a chance to answer one question before you get the next one. I had a case. It was a First Amendment case about free speech. And Chief Justice Rand, uh, it was actually Justice Stevens who asked me a hypothetical. Justice Kennedy said, add this to the hypothetical. Then Chief Justice Rehnquist said, add this to the hypothetical. I got one (laughs) sentence out in response to what Chief Justice Rehnquist said. And Justice Scalia then asked me a question about something totally different. And so you're constantly looking for the chance to go back and answer the questions you didn't get to. So that's not something from our perspective, you know, sitting at home watching our televisions, that we could really get the idea of how quickly and rapid fire that's happening for the attorney. It's a shame that there aren't cameras in the Supreme Court Mm. because these are such important issues, whether gays and lesbians have the right to marriage equality, whether colleges and universities can use race in admissions, whether the Affordable Care Act is constitutional. 
it is possible to listen to the tapes of the argument, and you do then see the rapid-fire nature of the questions, but cameras in the courtroom would make that so much easier and more accessible. What did you think of the Affordable Care Act decision? I think the court was right. Okay. I think that the individual mandate is constitutional. I think Chief Justice Roberts was correct in saying that the individual mandate is really a tax. We all have to pay, if we don't have insurance, 1% of our income or $95 in 2014, 2% of our income or $235 in 2015. It's collected by the Internal Revenue Service. The dollars go to the federal treasury. And so I think in every way, it is a tax. Didn't part of one, that decision make it so that the, the federal the, um, health care law was kind of arbitrary in some ways? Or, or it was up to states to decide part of it? The court declared one part of the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. This was the part that says that states had to cover within their Medicaid programs those within 133% of the federal poverty level. The federal government pays 100% of those costs in 2019 and 90% thereafter. And the Supreme Court said that was unduly coercive of the states and violated state sovereignty. Would you agree with that, though? No, not at all. Oh, okay. So how are are people in those states that aren't going to, with a better Medicaid, how are they going to be in the Affordable Care Act? Poor people in those states that don't want to comply with this requirement still will not have access to health care. Do you think that uh, Justice Roberts' support was a movement of his leadership? Or um, describe to me why you think he went the way he did. I believe he went the way he did because he believes the law is constitutional. Okay. I don't think he voted that way to make the court look good. Or to be controversial. (laughs) Right. You know, the reality is the Affordable Care Act is sufficiently controversial. About half the people like it and half the people don't. His vote either way was going to please half and displease half of the population. I think he voted that way because he believes it's constitutional. And I think to understand John Roberts in this regard, one needs to think of him as a more pro-business justice than a pro-state's rights justice. Hmm. John Roberts, after he graduated from law school, clerked for some judges, and then he went to work in the White House Counsel's Office when Ronald Reagan was president. He went to work in the Department of Justice after that. He then went into private practice representing business interests in the Supreme Court. He left that for several years to go represent the federal government in the Supreme Court, then went back to private practice before being a judge. Hmm. Why are we surprised that he's less suspicious of the federal government than some of the other conservatives? And why are we surprised that he's really more of a pro-business justice than anything else, which is what I think explains his vote in this case? Okay. All right. That's good. You shined a lot of light on that for us. And speaking of the Supreme Court, I wanted to ask you a little bit about affirmative action. Um, uh, We were talking earlier about um, affirmative action briefly, and I wanted to ask... um, ask you in terms of your position here at the law school, um, how do you view affirmative action um, in terms of your um, admittance process? And um, how do you justify that constitutionally? And how do you uh, see the, the Supreme Court um, dis- upcoming decision? What, what do you predict? The case before the Supreme Court is Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin. It was argued on Wednesday, October 10th, and involves whether colleges and universities may consider race as one factor in admissions decisions to benefit minorities and enhance diversity. I am very worried that the Supreme Court will substantially reduce, if not end, affirmative action in higher education. You can tell by that statement my own views. 
I highly value diversity in higher education. The reality is because of the legacy of discrimination in current inequalities in education, there's not going to be much diversity in elite schools without some form of affirmative action. It's always about taking from among qualified students, but part of what students bring is their life experience. Now, that said, California voters in 1996 passed Proposition 209 to amend the California Constitution to prohibit discrimination or preferences based on race or gender in government education, employment, or contracting. And UCI Law School complies with Proposition 209 in its admissions and hiring decisions. Okay. Um, so it begs the question for you now at this stage of your career, what do you see yourself more as, an administrator or still a lawyer? Because you really have the, the heart and the passion of of a lawyer. And so I'm, I'm fascinated. You really have your toes stuck in two different places. Where do you spend, you know, let's comment on that. I don't think I have to choose in terms of roles. I, mean, I do in one sense. I think of myself first and foremost as a teacher. Hmm. One of the choices that I've made as a dean is I still teach a full load. So this year I'm teaching first-year constitutional law, an upper-level course on federal courts. I'm co-teaching a freshman undergraduate seminar with the chancellor, and I'm supervising some students who are in a clinic arguing a case in the Ninth Circuit. So one of the things I have not cut down at all as dean is my teaching load because I think of myself first and foremost as a teacher. Now, the second, I am very mindful, not just on a daily basis, but almost on a momentary basis, of the administrative responsibilities of my position. I spend a great deal of time in all dimensions of that, and that includes, of course, things like fundraising, dealing with the central administration, dealing with personnel issues, dealing with the budget and the building and all of that. So that's key. One thing I do a lot less of since I've been dean is being an appellate lawyer. I still do some. I argued a case last year on behalf of a man who I think is innocent in the Federal Court of Appeals in Cincinnati. Um, I filed a petition for Supreme Court review with my son recently as a lawyer, um, and that was really fun to get to work with him. So I still do some, but one of the things that I've really had to cut back is being dean is the amount that I can practice a lawyer. Mm. I haven't given it up totally. I'm still a lawyer. You want to keep your toe in it. Right. No, it just it's not possible to do everything I used to do and do the full-time job of being a dean, too. So, okay, so do you wish you had more time to practice law? I would love to have more hours in the day. I mean, and so if I could have more hours in the day, there's lots of things I would do with them, including I would do more appellate cases if I had mm. more hours in the day. But as I said to you, I'm not going to be dean forever. I right. hope to do it another five years, and then I'll rejoin the faculty, and then I'll have the opportunity to do more in practicing law. So I'll continue to do some, but... Later in my career, I'll get to do more again. So when you fantasize about your next move, what is it for you? I don't know I know it's a little too soon. You know, I've never been somebody who's planned my career out. Everything that's happened to me was just being open to the opportunities. Um, When I was on the faculty at Duke in you know, UCI called, I can't tell you, I'd ever in my life thought of being a dean of a brand new law school. Right. But this just seemed <laughs> a little too great an opportunity. A play for you. Um, and I could go back through all of the major life career decisions. None of them were the product of planning. And so I don't sit here and say, wow, I fantasize that I'm going to do this next. I spend zero time thinking about that. I love what I'm doing now. And as opportunities come, I'll be open to them. And 
when this is done, I assume that I'll go back to being a professor and teach and write and handle cases as long as I'm able. So you brought up a, a, a an interesting concept. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Judy Rosner uh, next week, and that is indeed her topic, the uh, concept of serendipity and how she never planned any aspect of her professional career. And uh, you really just gave a nice uh, view on how that could work so successfully. And I just I had to jump, write. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, go ahead. Well, I, if I may jump in, I, you know, as I was reading your biographies, um, I, you know, I, I was going through your, your, um, you know, attendance at Harvard as a student and then um, working at Duke and working at USC and, and um, becoming an expert on constitutional law and, um, then, then a dean, a founding dean, several books, hundreds of articles, and then I came to one, one thing, and I just wanted to ask you about it. Um, is it true that you helped draft the Constitution of Belarus? It's true, and <laughs> okay. it was a terrible failure. <laughs> <laughs> In the summer of 1992, mm-hmm. I was contacted by the Department of State and the American Bar Association to be part of a small group of Americans to go help Belarus draft a new constitution. Remember, this was after the fall of the Soviet Union. Right. There was a lot of this going on in the former Soviet countries. And so four of us, and I was one of them, went over to Minsk, and we spent time there helping them. Um, I should tell you that Belarus was the first of the former Soviet states to repudiate its constitution and go back to being a totalitarian country. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a wonderful opportunity an amazing experience. I was in college at the time that that was happening, and I remember meeting a few people that were working for accounting firms that, that were there to help just with that process. It was a great experience. I can imagine. They were a very frustrating one in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering, do you see any like troubling trends in law? That's a great question. I see many troubling trends in law. I'm very concerned about the enormous budget cuts for the courts in our state, in our country. I now hear stories, say, of women who are victims of domestic abuse who desperately need restraining orders to protect themselves and their children who can't get into court because the courts are closed and no longer accessible. I'm tremendously concerned about the cuts in funding for legal aid and public defenders so that we don't provide representation for those who need them. So we have this wonderful ideal of equal justice under the law I think in the last several years, as a result of the budget crisis, we've moved ever further away from that ideal. I was just wondering, have you seen the documentary Hot Coffee about how corporations have you, you you know, like for cell phones or gym memberships, they put you in a binding arbitration so they keep you away from the court of law completely if something goes wrong. And I think that that's really troubling as well. And I've written about that in the more general trend of closing the courthouse door so that people who have suffered injuries can't get their day in court. So what do we have to do as a society to place value on supporting the court system so that it's there for us when we need it? We've got to find a way of making visible what's been invisible in terms of the budget cuts of the courts. If you look in the newspaper, you can read about how in California the number of courts that are just being closed. And we need to realize that that has real human costs. As I mentioned, for example, the women who can't get restraining orders when they need them. Right. And we can go on and on with examples of this. We've got to find a way of publicizing this and getting people to care. Because otherwise what happens is people don't think about the courts until they need them. 
And then they have these unconscionable delays and can't get into court. And so we have to find a way of mobilizing people about this because about all of us having access to a crucial part of our government. One of the questions I had for you is like a state's rights versus federal government thing. It seems like the Obama administration is shutting down a lot of cannabis clubs in California and saying federal law trumps our state proposition. Meanwhile, there's only one abortion clinic left in Mississippi, and we can't seem to protect the women's right to choose. How, does, how do those two things interplay with each other? I think you point to two different things. One is the ability of a state to decide it's going to have medical use of marijuana or legalized possession of small amounts. No state has to have a law prohibiting marijuana. Congress can't force states ever to have laws. So if California wanted to repeal its entire marijuana law, there is no doubt whatsoever it could do so. Well, if California would say, we'll have a law prohibiting marijuana, but we'll legalize medical use of marijuana, California can do that as well. Now, with regard to abortion, one of the tragedies in this country is that in many states, there are so few abortion providers. As you rightly point out, there's only one in Mississippi, and Mississippi is trying to create new requirements they would shut it down as well. Are, are we pushing ever closer to um, the Supreme Court perhaps overturning Roe v. Wade? On the current court, there are four votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. Hmm. Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. Had, for example, John McCain been elected president in 2008, and he, represent, he was able to pick the replacements for Stevens and Souter, Roe v. Wade would be overruled. Hmm. If Mitt Romney were elected president, and he could replace Justice Ginsburg, say, with uh, anti-abortion justice. Roe versus Wade would be overruled. We're that close. We're one justice away. Now, on the current court, I don't think there's five votes to overrule. Kennedy will vote to allow abortion regulations, but he won't vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. So it all depends on who replaces current justices when there's future vacancies. What keeps you up at night? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know a few things are going to keep me up at night after this interview. I'm very fortunate in that I sleep well. Oh, good. And so... Um, I can tell by your sunny disposition that you must. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I'll go to where we started. For the law school, what keeps me up at night is the question of money. Ultimately, whether UCI Law School can succeed is whether or not we can find the money to be a top 20 law school. When I was first approached by the Dean Search Committee, the first thing I said to them, and Mike Gottfriedson, the Executive Vice Chancellor, called me, the first thing I said is, I only want to do this if there's the money to make this a top 20 law school, and being a top 20 law school is something that's expensive. What keeps me up at night is, will we continue to have the money to be the kind of law school that we want? Will we find the money to build our new building? I don't want to be the dean of a mediocre law school. I want us to be a top law school. My greatest worry is, Will we have the money to do that? So uh, what has to happen to make that flow continue? Is it outside donations? Where, where are your biggest sources? In part, it's requiring the continued support of the university. And Chancellor Drake has been terrific in that regard. And Executive Vice Chancellor Mike Godfredson and the Interim Vice Chancellor, Executive Vice Chancellor Sue Bryant have done that, but it needs to continue. And second, we have to raise money. Um, we've raised a lot of money already. We need to continue to raise money, money for scholarships, um, we want to raise $85 million for our new building. And that's got to come from private sources. Right. And $85 million is a lot of money a lot to raise. Of money. <laughs> yes. Where are you at right now? 
Well, we're just beginning our building okay. campaign. We've just hired a campaign consultant. We're just getting our first promises. And it's going to have to come through several large gifts. If we do this by trying to combine small gifts, we're not going to build this building in my lifetime. Yeah. But I'm committed. As I said, I'm going to – if things go the way we're planning, I mean, there's no guarantees, and I were dean five more years, I want us to be in the new building by the time I'm done. UCI is getting to be a crowded campus. Where is the location of the new building? I have my ideal place. <laughs> I can't tell you that the university will approve it. If you think of where Aldridge Hall and the theater, the Berkeley Theater are, yeah. and you think of where the MPAA and parking structure, there's an open parking lot sort of right on campus across from like Jack in the Box and In-N-Out and that. Yeah. that parking lot is where I'd like the new law school building to be. Oh, but again, nice. I'm speaking for myself, right not for the, the campus. <laughs> Erwin Chemerinsky, you are definitely a rock star. After oh, meeting you, you, I'm so grateful to you for coming into the studio and telling us about your law school, your hopes and dreams for it, and and your wonderful career and all the contributions that you've made to our community. You definitely uh, shine as one of Orange County's real people. <laughs> You're very kind. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. So up next is, oh, well, and Maria, thank you for coming in and, and considering UCI Law School. I'm excited for you. Well, it's been such a pleasure to be here. And um, I've learned so much in this interview. And I, I think I can speak for a lot of listeners that I'm leaving more inspired. Thank wonderful, you. Wonderful. And then on a bittersweet note, Heather, is this, do we? Are, we don't know if this is my last show. We don't. Okay, good. So I, still hold, out, I yeah. still hold out hope that you're going to be with me going forward. Next week is, uh, do, as I said earlier in the interview, is Dr. Judy Rosner. And I can't wait to talk about her, too. So um, another inspirational uh, UCI um, faculty member. So Counter Spins Up Next, followed by Planet Radio. Very short edition of Things That Are Square, but men's basketball is going to be on around 645-ish with the pregame show. This is 8. 88.9 KCI FM in Irvine.